When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. John Katsimatidis is my friend. John Katsimatidis gets written about more than what's-her-face Kardashian. He came here as an immigrant child. He now owns most of New York City's supermarkets. Red Apple, Gristidis, D'Agostino, etc., etc. He owns real estate here, Florida, and anywhere else there's a pile of dirt. He owns WABC Radio. He owns the Staten Island Yankees Ball Club. He owns airplanes. He owns oil wells. He's pals with all the politicians, except those in Albany who are on parole. So I want to talk to him. John, where did you come from? How did you get here? Well... I was born on a little island in off the coast of Turkey. It's part of the Dodecanese Islands, which means 12 islands. It's a small volcanic island, just like Santorini is. It has its own volcano. Last week, it had a, an earthquake of 5.8, and everybody's okay. Um, and a lot of people from that island are successful. It must be the water. <laughs> it must be the volcanic water or something. But uh, I was born in, and we came to America when I was six months old. But the story starts way before that. My two grandfathers, my father's uh, father and my mother's father came from uh, in 1913. They were looking for the streets that are full of gold. Yeah. But it took me 100 years to find it. it took no, the but family you found plenty found of it. Gold, silver, and everything else you got. Platinum. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. And um, uh, But my, my uh, father's uh, uh, father, uh, 1913, his name was John Katsimatidis, but he died in 1918 from the flu, from whatever that was, the Spanish flu. Yeah. My father, my mother's father came in 1913. Went back to his country and asked his wife to join him with the kids. She refused. So what does, she, what does he do? He comes back. He doesn't want to be alone. He married this other lady in the Bronx, a Jewish lady. Had two daughters that looked like my mother. So what are you, half Jewish, half Greek? What are you? I'm 6% Jewish. <laughs> What? Which part of you is six percent? I don't I know. Like, I'll check it out. <laughs> oh, excuse me. I don't want to. I was circumcised. On, oh, you really were? I was circumcised. So I'm part Jewish there. Jeez, you, you're a big guy. There must have been an interesting circumcision. Okay, okay. So the background of your family in Greece. What did they do? Your father and your grandfather and your mother. My mother was from Constantinople, the yeah. famous uh, city, yeah. the Greek city that yeah. became Istanbul. And um, when I talked to my talked to my Greek friends, I said Constantinople. When I talked to talk to my Turkish friends, I say Istanbul. <laughs> okay. And um, uh, my her father was known as a terrorist. So to the to the Turkish uh, people, to the Turkish government, whatever it was, the Ottoman Empire. So one night they left at midnight, and they went down to that island of Nisidos. And uh, her father, her grandfather, was the uh, uh, at the patriarchy 
from 1890 on. The patriarchy is similar to the pope because the pope and the patriarch in Constantinople sit on equal uh, levels of Christianity. Yeah, I know. I know that. So you mean you come from a very high-class background, is that it? You come from a high-class background? I mean, a a bum like you comes from a high-class background? Well, my mother went down there, and they were from a very um, learned family. She got an education in uh, Rhodes, which was the big island there. And um, uh, my father worked for the Italian government, because those islands were part of Italy, Till World War Two, and my father worked on a lighthouse for seventeen years, and all by himself on a piece of rock. Got a you know every few months he get a couple of days off, and uh, when the when the World War Two was over, and my father worked for the Italian government. Well, he was on the, they were on the losing side, <laughs> so the Brits that ran everything. Yeah. Take those islands and say, Italy, you did the wrong thing. You were on the wrong side. We're going to take those islands. We're going to give them back to Greece. So when I was born, I was conceived an Italian. I was born a Greek. And you have a Jewish part that was taken care of here by the rabbis? The rabbi took care of the Jewish part. Oh, my God. You have one of everything going on. Okay. When did you become an American citizen? Well, we came here when I was six months old, about when I was five years old, six years old. Me, my father, and my mother, I remember the day we went downtown to wherever that was, the courthouse, the Department of Justice, whatever, and we swore allegiance to the United States of America. And I remember my American citizenship papers, and I was so, all of us were so proud of it. I think that's terrific. So you went to school here. I Is that to, when you learned English here? Well, I went to kindergarten at PS 192. Where's that? We grew up, I grew up in Harlem on 135th Street, uh, right off Amsterdam Avenue. And PS 192 was up opposite City College and the, uh, well, what was the name of that stadium up there? Lewiston Stadium? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. that's where I went to uh, grammar school to start with, kindergarten. And uh, then my father thought I needed some religion, so I went to parochial school for two, three years, learned a little bit of Greek, and then I followed my friends. I went to Brooklyn Tech High School, which was a great school. To study what? Engineering, which I knew nothing about, and when I graduated, I still knew nothing about. What about college? Uh, I had a congressional nomination for West Point. How'd you get that? Well, I worked for Congressman uh, William Fitz Ryan, the big West oh, Side. I, I remember that. He name. was a good guy. And I was 14 years old, 15 years old. I worked for him. And uh, when I was 17, he says to me, why don't uh, you, you always like West Point. Why don't I give you the congressional nomination to West Point? And he gave it to me. But my father and mother, they, they were upset. They said, you're our only son. So my mother cried. My father yelled, I went to NYU in the Bronx. So so how did you get from there to opening your first job in a supermarket or owning a supermarket? That's how it all started. My, I was all set. When I graduated high school, I was all set to sleep on the couch for the whole, <laughs> for the whole summer. I remember flopping myself down the couch. I had a, a, a 19-inch TV set. Turned it on. I was going to do that for the whole summer. Yeah. My mother threw me off the couch. 
and she went and got me the job at the grocery store on 137th Street and Broadway. And that guy, Tony, that ran it, ended up becoming like a big brother to me. And I worked there all through my college years and summers during the summer and on weekends. Doing what? What did you do there? Running the store, you know, filling up the grocery shelves, carrying the soda from the basement. He was too cheap to have a conveyor belt. So I had to carry four (laughs) cases of soda at a time from the basement up. You poor soul. You poor soul. Okay, go ahead. And uh, and the cashier was making a dollar ten cents an hour, and he was paying me only a dollar an hour. <laughs> and this is what you're paying me now for. Then let's get let's get to the. I'm paying you that, that much. <laughs> go ahead. And go ahead. and one day he comes to me. He says, "I'm arguing with my uncle every day." His uncle had they built another store down on the 99th and Broadway. On 100th Street and Broadway. I'm on arguing with my uncle every day. I said, what, what's the matter? What's the matter? You've got to take over my position. What do you mean? What are you talking about? He says, here, sign on a dotted line. You owe me $10,000, $1,000 a month for 10 months, and you take over my position in the store. How could you be? But you were a kid. You were a kid. I was a kid, and I was going to college. So I ended up going to school. In those days, college was five days a week. Yeah. Going to college from five from eight o'clock in the morning to four in the afternoon, five o'clock I'd go to store, work to one o'clock in the morning, and so on and so on and so on. But where'd you get the thousand dollars to give him? Well, I worked for a whole month before I had to give him the first thousand. A month you made a thousand dollars. That's a lot days? of money. A lot of money in those days. And that's how you you bought your first supermarket. Yes. All I know is... And it was downstairs next to Bernstein's Deli. And I I had plenty of uh, pastrami and plenty of corned beef. And that guy who owned Bernstein's Deli, also, uh, uh, it was on top, on top was the old Midland uh, Hotel or something, or Midway Hotel. And that was an interesting place. Well, if you got all the pastrami and all the salami, all I know is on every one of my birthdays, and there have been a lot, you always send me a carton of malamars. Where do you get these fakakta malamars from? Well, that was an interesting story. You complained you couldn't couldn't get malamars. And you know the reason? In the days when the supermarkets never had air conditioning, well, Nabisco, who owned malamars, stopped making them in the summertime. So what I did, I've decided to corner the market in Malamars. <laughs> I bought three truckloads of Malamars. We had the air conditioning, and I had Malamars for all my customers for the whole summer. And the New York Post at that time did a full page. We've got to be able to draw it up from the archives, a full page story that – we had Malamars. Nobody else had Malamars. Well, listen, sweetheart. If you ever want to have any more Malamars to give to anybody, come to me. I've got crates of Malamars in my living room. You can okay. resell them on eBay. I'm going to sell them to you, sweetheart. So you always send them to me. Uh, and animal crackers. You send me that stuff, too. Animal crackers in my soup. Oh, forget it, will you, for God's sakes. Okay, after supermarkets, where did you go? Well, I discovered that in New York City, you can't be in the supermarket business if you don't own the real estate because they foreclose on you. (laughs) So after a few years being in the supermarket business, I realized I better start buying real estate. And when the market was coming to an end in 1977, the world was coming to an end in New York. I didn't know any better. 
<laughs> I started buying a, a piece of real estate almost every month. What kind of money did you have that you could buy a piece of real estate every month? Well, we borrowed the money. We borrowed the money from our, our supermarket suppliers. In those days, you paid when you could pay. Yeah. So every month, we, we borrow some money from the suppliers, uh, buy another location, buy another building. And uh, we ended up buying like 40 buildings or something, 30 buildings in like three, four years when the market was coming to an end. And one day, I remember my mentor. Uh, my, one of them, by the way, my mentor, they created uh, Haagen-Dazs ice cream. What do you mean? In the what house South Bronx. What are you talking about? Who? Who? Who's a mentor that created Haagen-Dazs? Rose Mattis. And you met Rose Mattis. She loved us. Rose Mattis and Ruben Mattis created Haagen-Dazs in the basement of the, their Bronx uh, home. And it was the most successful ice cream ever. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. I didn't know. I didn't know that. I didn't know. I didn't know any of that. I don't know that story. I also don't know the story of your mother in Greece, which has to be made into a book or a movie. I know there are people who want to make a story out of it. Can you tell us a little bit about it? My mother was an educated lady from Constantinople. And uh, in those days, uh, they found a wonderful uh, gentleman, and they sent him to Athens to become a lawyer. And my mother's family paid for his education. And he was supposed to come back and marry my mom. Yeah. So there she is on the pier waiting for him to come back. And there's no telephones. There's no telegraph. And the boat comes. And there's the captain handing a letter to my mom. That a letter from, from the, the person that's supposed to be there to marry her. Saying, I fell in love. Uh, with another woman, I'm not coming back. Oh, my. And my mother went into deep depression because he ended up marrying the uh, uh, daughter of his uh, professor in law school because it made him more successful. And when we introduced the book in Athens. A book on your life. I'm, I'm by, uh, no, a book on my mother. On your mother. Yeah, okay. The person's son came to the book party. I didn't know that story. Yes. See, you, just, you learn new stuff every day. And my mother went to deep depression, and uh, her two brothers were not allowed to get married unless my mother was married. The two, the, the, the two uh, ladies that were engaged to my mother's brothers had four brothers that weren't allowed to get married, and so on and so on. So you had 11 couples that couldn't get married because my mother was in depression. I, I, don't, I don't understand. Why were they not allowed to get married? Under Greek tradition. Tradition. And so my father came back from the, from the lighthouse, and he was a working man. He was a carpenter. Remember the song, If I Was a Carpenter and You Were a Lady, Would yeah. You Marry Me? Yeah. Well, yeah. this is the situation. My mother had no intentions of marrying somebody like my father. But to set her brothers free and to set everybody else free, my mother married my father. And the book was called Eleven Weddings 
and one sacrifice. Is that is that a law from the island or a law from it's Greece? It's not a law. It's a tradition. Of what? Greek tradition? That no. your br- brothers cannot get married. Uh, the brothers cannot get married unless their sister is married. Oi. Okay. Oi. All right. Okay, now let's get to something I might possibly understand. WABC. You have had your fingers in everything. How and why and when did you buy the radio station, WABC? I bought it last year. We closed on it March 1, 2020, when uh, uh, right in the middle of COVID. And it had come to me just a few months before that. And I grew up with WABC. I loved WABC. I listened to it uh, from when I was five years old or six years old. I loved Cousin Brucey. I loved all, everything about it. And when the opportunity came, I said, okay, I'll buy it. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts. I didn't care if it made money, didn't make money. I just wanted to buy it. And I said, well, should I buy a new airplane or should I buy a WABC? I bought WABC. For a little less than an airplane. A little less than an airplane. <laughs> yeah. So I wrote the check, bought the thing, and then it was number like 25 in New York. Because the old company really didn't do a good job with it. We're now in the top five again, and we're going to be number one soon. You can be number one in almost anything, John. There's something special about you. You're number one in giving people money, in helping people, in doing charity. I think you're terrific, and I love you. And I remember first being with you on the Republican dais, and then right after the Republican dais, you invited me to your house for dinner with the Clintons. So, I mean, you go in any direction. I remember being on the dais, (laughs) and you were sitting next to me, and you know who was in the audience? See if you can remember. Fred Thompson. Oh, my. And nobody knew who Fred Thompson was. And I asked Fred Thompson to stand up because I, when I was running the airline in Tennessee, I lived in Tennessee for two years running you the also airline. Owned, yeah, you had an airline. And he was on my board of directors. Fred Thompson got up, waved at everybody, and he whispered in my ear, who's he? <laughs> I remember that. I remember so much stuff. I also remember how you just suddenly bought the Staten Island Ball Club. Now, how did that? How did that happen? Well, I I always love the Yankees. You I love always, everything. I, you want to buy anything. I'm a New Yorker. I love the Yankees. And um, why don't you buy the subway? <laughs> when Randy Levine uh, calls me up and says, "John, I'm going to redo the Yankees team, uh, the minor league team in Staten Island. Uh, we want to be partners with you." So when the Yankees want to be partners with me, I said, what am I going to say? Of course I want to be a partner with the Yankees. You're a wonderful person with the Yankees. I'm going to the Yankees tonight, as a matter of fact. I'm going there. So you have, But you have special ways, John, people who don't know you. You are out seven nights a week. How is it possible you have the strength to schlep out seven nights a week? I love people. I love seeing people. I love talking to people. I just love it. And I I feel staying home and doing nothing, you become a real nothing. You actually took your bird to the weekend, every weekend, to your your house in the Hamptons. My daughter's bird. My daughter's bird had its own nanny. 
<laughs> Tell me, how is this possible? We Wherever we go, we didn't want to leave the bird by himself. We loved him. And if we were away out of New York, there was a make, we made sure there was a nanny watching the bird. But how could you schlep a bird? I know that. Every weekend, every Saturday morning, you would schlep this dumbass bird to the Hamptons. Well, we loved that bird. My daughter loved that bird. And um, uh, we um, he finally passed away at like 24, 25 years old. And we were very, very sad. And my daughter had it, what do you call it? Stuffed? Or? Yeah, yeah. Stuff. And then me and my daughter, we had a custody fight. Oh, who's going to have custody of the stuffed bird? Well, who's got the, the stuffed bird now? My daughter wins. Oh, listen, she wins. Your daughter is gorgeous, and she wins almost everything. And now I have to cut you off because I've had enough of you on the air. Just one quick question: If there's so much money with ship owners in Greece, why is that country in such bad shape? Because of the laws. Not one ship owner keeps his ships in Greece. They keep them in Panama. They keep them in all over the world. Nobody keeps it in Greece. So that shows you, Cindy, when you have bad tax laws, people, money moves to where the friendly areas are. The same thing, unfortunately, is happening in New York City, New York State. The legislators think that People that are rich are dumb. They're not dumb. They just pick up and go to Miami. <laughs> and, you know, we, we got to get a better system in New York. John Katsimatidis, I love you, and it's your turn to take me to dinner. Well, who's paying? You. <laughs> you got it. Goodbye, honey. <laughs> This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.